Major support for Out to Lunch is provided by the law firm of Jones Walker, established in 1937 with over 375 attorneys in offices throughout the U.S., providing a comprehensive range of services to a local, national, and international client base. JonesWalker.com. And by Oxbow Rum Distillery, local family grown small batch rum, embodying the essence of Louisiana sugarcane harvest. OxbowRumDistillery.com. From Tula Tacos and Amigos in downtown Lafayette, we're out to lunch with Christian Mader, publisher and editor of The Current. It's business Acadiana style. Welcome to Out to Lunch. I'm Christian Mader. The goal of pretty much every business is to grow, it's the beating heart of capitalism, but scaling up is complicated. The bigger you get, the bigger the problems get, and it's not really a one-to-one ratio. The learning curve can get steeper and steeper as your operation adds new locations, new employees, new revenue streams. You know, but growing pains are a good problem to have. The struggle can be real, but if you're doing it right, so is the payoff. And my guest, Corey McCoy, and his partners at Kitchen on Clinton learned on the job quickly as their operation took flight. In 2016, they started selling chicken wings out of their house on Clinton Street in Lafayette to pay the party bills. Uh, But by 2018, they built a food truck on a flatbed trailer, and later that year, they were in a brick-and-mortar shop near UL. And then came two more locations. Uh, Kitchen on Clinton is again poised for growth and has been well recognized for its success. Corey and his partners received the Young Entrepreneurial Business of the Year Award from the U.S. Small Business Administration. Corey McCoy, welcome to Out to Lunch. (laughs) Thank you, thank you. I'm glad to be here. If you're in agriculture, business is literally always growing. And my guest, Jerry Hale, has spent his life farming. He grew up on a 7,000-acre cotton farm in Rayville, Louisiana. That's in the northeast part of the state. Uh, Growing up, his family farmed white cotton, the prime crop of the South. And then Jerry discovered brown cotton. Acadian brown cotton is an heirloom seed believed to be the first cotton found or grown, excuse me, in Louisiana. The Acadians used it for their textile when they arrived here and sort of forgot about it. Acadian brown cotton produces a shorter fiber than conventional cotton, but it's a more sustainable product. Brown cotton plants can bloom over and over while white cotton plants are discarded once they're picked. Jerry took two cups of brown cotton seeds from a friend and kicked off a burgeoning ecotourism and education business. Today, he grows around two acres of brown cotton and represents and assists around 300 growers. And in 2021, he represented Acadiana at the Selvage World Fair of Textiles in London. Jerry Hale, welcome to Out to Lunch. Well, thank you. Glad to be here. So, Corey, I'm thinking about your journey here, and I'm like, you guys started some guys frying chicken wings in your kitchen. The next thing you know, you're running a restaurant. At what point did you realize you were going to have to buy a lot more chicken? <laughs> I realized that when Walmart pretty much banned us from the premises because <laughs> <laughs> we used to go in there and buy out all of the chicken to where they wouldn't be able to sell it into the customers. Yep. So uh, once they put us on the ban list, it was like, hey, stop selling chicken to these guys. I was like, all right, it's time for us to get a distributor and, you know, go professional with it. That's uh, that's you got to work pretty hard to get banned from Walmart for oh, buying yeah. too much stuff. Um, so, I mean, what was the process like next? I mean, like, I, I don't know that I've actually talked to, to folks who've had to make that step from, you know, we were buying basically at retail and now I got to go to wholesale. So how did you find the right wholesaler for you? Well, it was really just proving that we can produce the volume because we initially started off talking to the distributors when we had the food truck and they wasn't they weren't hearing anything we were trying to tell them. They were like, no, we don't distribute the food trucks. You yep. know, it's not going to work. So we just started buying retail. Yeah. Uh, fast forward about a year and a half later, they're all competing for our business. So now we <laughs> now we uh, 
do business with a couple of different distributors. Yeah. Um, from Cisco to U.S. Foods to Emico here locally. So definitely flip the tables if you can call it that. <laughs> yeah, I guess when they're competing for you, you're definitely succeeding. Right. Uh, Jerry, you're not just a grower. You're really an advocate, right, and an educator here around yes, I am. Th this product. And, and I was thinking about it, though. Like, to some extent, there's a vision here that this could be a, a, a commercial product, right, I would presume at some yes. level. Yes. And, of course, thinking through that intro, right, you know, you got a two-acre farm. You got a 7,000-acre farm. I mean, do you have to get from two acres to 7,000 for this thing to become viable in that way? you have to really get large for it to be viable for yeah. a commercial because we're basically a educational platform yeah. of preserving history, Louisiana agriculture, and uh, Acadian history. Yeah, I mean, what kind of, so you know, sitting here on the table, we've got some stuff that y'all have been produced, right? Some, some blankets and stuff. I mean, have you guys dabbled in producing more contemporary textiles? I mean, things that people would, would buy and trade in a more... No, we, we're going to stick with what we're with because we can't produce enough textiles to fill the need. Yeah. Um, I have people waiting for us to produce more textiles every day. Yeah. And that's why I won't build a website. I get too many calls already. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, it's kind of interesting. you got a different thing. Like, you know, there's a degree to which, like, maybe growth would be problematic, right, for what you guys yeah, are trying to do. Yeah, very problematic. Yeah. <laughs> So, I mean, well, talk to me a little bit more about, you know, the vision then. I mean, outside of the education, right? I mean, there's obviously a value in preserving the history, but you've added growers. And so what are your growers doing? Is it really for them just being part of the history or are they making use of it too? Well, all of our cotton is natural, no pesticides, no herbicides. So right now, that's really popular, everything organic. Yeah. So that's really encouraging people. Uh, I'm on a Facebook page with over 2,000 spinners and weavers worldwide. Yeah and they all are wanting natural fiber. Yeah. And uh, for example, you can get white cotton. It's really inexpensive. Uh, white cotton sells for about 67 cents a pound. Mm -hmm. My fiber sells for $26 a pound. Yeah. So it's really in high demand, yeah. which uh, we don't sell our fiber. I do give it away to people who are spinners and weavers who are educators, but I don't sell it to people who just spin and weave. So yeah. Yeah. Uh, like I said, we're, we're all about you know, educating people on where their clothing comes from, how plants are grown, how fiber is produced. So that's really what we're doing. You know, Corey, I'm thinking about, you know, y you guys making some growth, right, and, and doing this in an industry where, you know, you kind of fast casual sort of thing. You know, in chicken wings, there are, there are some, you know, big players in that space. I mean, how do you grow, you know, say you go into Baton Rouge or New Iberia, right? And maybe there's a Buffalo Wild Wings or something there. I mean, what's your value proposition to a customer around something like a chicken wing is an economy product, right? It's something that most people like, they could be really, really good, but it's like at some level you're competing, like they've got wholesalers and they're getting probably lower prices than even you are, right? So we, what, what's your strategy around competing with, a, a, with an entity like that? Um, our, we like to base our business model on being able to connect to the community around us. Yeah. And a lot of large corporations, that's where they lose, you know, yeah. their, their focus. Um, it's easy to drive sales. It's easy to grow. But it's very hard to stay connected to the communities yeah. that you're in. Yeah. So we really pride ourselves on not only putting up locations in those communities, but also um, getting involved in the affairs of the community, mm -hmm. um, whether that's participating in the city council, chamber of commerce. We like to be very involved in the areas that we're in. Yeah, I mean, is that tough to do when you're moving <clears throat> into a brand new place, right? So, like, are, are you're 
you didn't grow up in Lafayette, right? No. I think you came, but maybe your partners did. Or I'm not sure. If um, had, one of my partners grew up in Franklin, Louisiana. Yeah. Two of them are from New Orleans, and yeah. I'm from Georgia. Okay, so I mean, look, I mean, people can be from anywhere, right? And right. eventually, you adopt a place. <laughs> but I mean, if part of your value proposition is like we're going to get involved, and you and you moved to Baton Rouge, I mean, how do you in, invest yourself personally there? That sounds like that takes a lot of time and effort does take a lot of time and effort it makes it easy that we're in the food business and everybody's always interested in eating and yeah. drinking yeah. you know so it's easy to make friends yeah. easy to you know talk about various issues yeah. and regardless of what's going on you know food kind of fits into that yeah. category so we we use the food to get our foot in the door yeah. and then we work on you know being activists once once we're there yeah sure um you know jerry i'm thinking about you know the the role that you guys are playing in sort of this network it sounds like internationally it seems you know in it, it, with growers and weavers i mean is are people just doing this to be is it mostly folks that you're you're, you're communicating with that are artisans or preservationists in their only way or, or are these folks that are making products for farmers market retail i mean talk to me a little bit just about what that ecosystem is like they're they're a little bit of everything i just had a group of ladies come from washington state just to lafayette so they could learn about brown cotton and yeah. go out and pick it and actually gin it. I have a gin, I gin my own cotton. Yeah. So, and then I have people who are tatters who do special type of weaving. Tatters? Uh, a tatter is someone, have you ever seen lace on your grandmother's uh, counter? That sure, sit, yeah. That's, yeah. What it, that's called tatting. Okay. And it's a very specially type weaving. Yeah. And, uh, so those type of people, you have artisans, you have people that are interested in history, mm -hmm. you have people that have grown up on farms who actually uh, have grown brown cotton. I had a lady call me, she was 95 years old from Prairie Roan, and she grew up, of course, back then, everyone was poor. They had food, but they didn't have cash. Mm -hmm. So they would, she grew brown cotton with her family, so they would have cash to buy things. They grew their own food, but they didn't have money to buy things hmm. so uh so it's a variety of people yeah uh I, why is it that you know when you kind of hear the story that with, with, with what's valuable or unique about brown cotton as a as a fiber i mean it seems like it would have had a lot of ad, you know advantages why was this sort of discarded in favor of white cotton because this has a shorter fiber uh, and uh, white cotton has a longer fiber Brown is brown. White, you can dye it any color in the rainbow. You can okay. dye white cotton 40 different shades of brown. Yeah. So that's why it's lost its luster. But people don't realize there are a lot of natural color fibered cottons. There's blue. Mm -hmm. There's red. There's green. There's black. There's all different types of colors. Yeah. But they're losing their popularity because you can take white and you can dye it any color of the rainbow. Okay. Sure. Uh, Corey, why chicken wings i mean was it just because that was the food that you guys liked when you were throwing parties or, or was there something you thought you know this is when you're cooking you're frying this stuff up you know five six years ago was it something you were saying to yourself well this is really going to sell i mean talk to me a little bit like the, the product choice here um it's a very uh good party food as you know <laughs> um one of the main you know tailgating anytime there's a gathering wings are a popular choice but also we were looking at our competition in the market and realized there wasn't a lot of major players in it um 
of course you have your wing stops, your Buffalo Wild Wings, but when you think about different things like burgers or even tacos, it's a, a variety of different chains that really specialize in that. When we looked at chicken wings, we realized it was a lot less competition in that area, yeah. and it was kind of a new market in America, really, less than 100 <laughs> years old. So when we realized that, we realized there's a big gap to be able to get into, and we feel like we can grow our business into one of those large corporations that can compete with Buffalo Wild Wings or Wingstop. Have y'all dabbled with other foods? I mean, have you thought like, you know, maybe Kitchen and Clinton could do burgers or tacos <laughs> or, you know, anything like well, that? Well, right now we do seafood as well. We mm -hmm. do fish. Mm -hmm. um, we do shrimp. Um, when it's crawfish season, we also dabble in a little crawfish boiling and things like yeah. that. So we got a variety on our menu. Our restaurant is actually KOK Wings and Things. So yeah. we have wings and we got other things that we offer as yeah. well. But chicken wings are our main priority yeah sure sure so jerry what about you i mean like obviously this is a singular passion for you are there other heirloom forgotten seeds textiles that you're interested in this keeps me too busy <laughs> <laughs> yeah I, i'm only doing textiles and education that's yeah um and uh, if i were to go into other textiles it's very hard to find weavers in america most all the weavers have gone out of the country so it's hard to find a weaver who will work specifically with a small volume. Because mm -hmm. most weavers in America that you uh, talk to, they want to know if you're going to do 10,000 yards of one pattern or 100,000 yards of one pattern, one color. So our, our weaver is a specialty weaver. She only does historical homes and movies. So she makes all the fabric for all kinds of specialty movies. Mm -hmm. And that's the reason she took us own as one of her clients hmm. i it's interesting to me that, that that you gravitated to this after growing up on a farm it seems like you kind of like left it and then you come back to it i mean i forgive worked me, but it's very like it's hard to get an education to get off the farm and i'm right back in the cotton field <laughs> <laughs> i mean what was it about it that drew so much passion for you i mean I, I, just to be glib i mean it's well it's a plant well i'm a fourth generation cotton planter yeah so it kind of grew up with it in my family so it kind of interested me and uh, it was something I didn't have to do to survive yeah. but it was something I could enjoy doing you're listening to out to lunch I'm Christian Mater I'm talking with Jerry Hale of Acadian Brown Cotton and Corey McCoy of Kitchen on Clinton you know um, you know you, you talked Corey a little bit about how you know the vision might be to, to, to have a larger corporation right to be able to be sort of a fixture right um, it strikes me that it might be difficult to continue to be a community partner if you're a, a big company. I mean, have you thought much about how to scale the community service aspect of your It's one thing to say, like, we could double the number of chicken wings, we can have these efficiencies. It's hard to make community service efficient. A big part of it is um, our management team. They run all our locations, and we make our managers big members of the community. So it's not just my face on it or my partner's face on it. The people who are actually working in the restaurant, we look at them as, you know, community leaders in their community. So we get them involved, and we feel like based off that business plan, the larger we grow, we'll be able to stay connected to the community. Yeah, and so, so I, I, did I understand correctly? You guys have already kind of moved away from the branding as Kitchen on Clinton to KOK Wings and Things. Yes, right? yes. I mean, I was going to ask you about that because it would seem like as you're growing, it's like <laughs> the idea of Kitchen on Clinton suddenly that doesn't mean anything to anybody. It's real right? confusing because everybody's like, where's Clinton? Where's Clinton? So we, we kind of <laughs> summed it up to KOK just to make it short and less confusing for everybody. Yeah. But yeah, that was an area of growth that we had to do. Yeah. And so you, you guys, I guess at some point, had 
what locations another second location in Lafayette and in, in, in one in, in Franklin that you that you closed I mean why did you choose those locations when you did well we had one in the mall we had one in Franklin and we decided to move from those areas because at first they were great exposure for our business like I said mm-hmm. one of our partners is from Franklin so we had a very strong presence in that community a lot of customer base yeah. and then in the mall it was good for us to kind of move from like a mom and pop feel yeah. to more of a corporate looking feel when you see a restaurant in the mall it seems like more of a bigger brand so yeah. we did that for a while but then we started to outgrow the market in the mall in Franklin yeah. and decide to relocate to New Iberia which is a little bit of a bigger market and then Baton Rouge yeah that, that makes a lot of sense I mean Jerry y'all have really I, I've I feel like I've heard a lot about Acadia and Brown Cotton over the last couple of years I mean honestly like I think you guys have done a pretty good job of marketing it as a thing that we should all care about you know it's been in art museums right um, you, you've got sort of collectors all over the place I say collectors excuse me like growers people who seem very passionate about it I mean what is it you think that people are like resonating with about it is it is it just that it's another piece of tradition that people are gravitating toward or is it something it's, that or is it the, the heritage of the Acadian people and their plight you yeah. know being exiled out of Nova Scotia and then moving here and reestablishing their lives here. So it's really the second time they reestablished their lives. Yep. First of all, they went to Nova Scotia, and then they got exiled out of Nova Scotia, and then they came here. So this was their second chance to start a life over again. Mm-hmm. So, And, you know, many, many people in this area are descendants of the Acadians. Yeah. So that's why it draws a lot of attention. So, I mean, you get interested in this, and you decide you'll grow it. Did you think to yourself... Maybe I'll weave instead. It seems like maybe that would be easier to fit. A loom it perhaps drove, would be. It drove me. I went in it yeah. just to plant and to provide seed to the ULK Seed Bank. And uh, then I had all this fiber, and I had to decide what I wanted to do to the fiber. And, mm-hmm. you know, so I looked for uh, weavers. And so we had to go commercial weaver because it takes over a 1,000 hours to make one blanket hand weaving. Yeah. And most people couldn't afford it because that price tag is over $2,500 a blanket. Jeez. Okay. So commercially, <laughs> we could offer something that people could purchase yeah. that wasn't so expensive and they could have a little bit of history. Yeah. You know, I would imagine that, that when you guys, Corey, are, are, are making your transition, it's like one thing to you know kind of get kicked out of Walmart, right? Um, but <laughs> it's a great story, by the way. Uh, but I mean, like, you know, turning your operation into, I don't mean this cynically, like a fast food kind of approach. Like it takes a lot of procedures and processes. I mean, how did you guys adopt new practices to sort of operate at that level? I mean, that seems like it's got its own set of hurdles to get to. Well, a lot of a lot of different obstacles growing bigger. Um, one of the biggest obstacles were uh, how young we were. Um, we, I'm, I just turned thirty this year. All of my business partners are younger than me, mm-hmm. um, so we ranged from twenty six to thirty. But when we started the business, we were twenty two, twenty three, twenty four years old, yep. and a lot of the people that we were hiring were double our age or the same age as us. So right. that was probably the biggest hurdle: is figuring out how to manage people, yep. figuring out how to get people to buy into the brand, mm-hmm. and then another thing that we really had to overcome was how to manufacture our sauces kind of kind of like what uh, jerry is saying um it's one thing to do it small but then when you got to start mass producing it it turns into an entirely different thing we used to hand mix all of our sauces Mm -hmm. for all of our locations and then that became a overbearing task would take 
a whole day, yeah. a whole week yeah. almost to make the sauces we need yeah. to. So we eventually got with a manufacturer out of Mississippi who was able to manufacture our sauces for us, and that really allowed us to grow I exponentially. Mean, as you plot, you know, your next moves, <clears throat> are you starting to have to think about, you know, are we going to have to have distribution facilities and stuff? I mean, I remember, like, like I used to be in bands, and we'd tour out west, and we would go to In-N-Out Burger, and we're like, why does In-N-Out Burger come out this way? And it was because they couldn't outpace their supply chain. I mean, have you started thinking about how you're going to, you know, grow that far or am i just kind of looking too far into the future already <laughs> uh it, it can be looking too far maybe i need to take some tips from jerry on this because <laughs> when you get when you get to that big um you got you're competing against your your tysons and yeah. things like that and it's almost is it is it easier to just get it from those mass distributors or do you start growing your you know farming your own chickens and yeah. raising your own chickens and doing things like that but i think that's that's way further down the road sure. um after we start franchising and things like that we'll look into more upward integration and figuring out how to cut costs by producing some of our own materials. and for both of us we both have this problem prices have gone up exponentially yes. this year well, so his cost of his chicken wing is probably going up 40 percent yes or if <laughs> not more higher yeah. so my weaving cost is going up about 60 percent my shipping cost is going up almost 50 percent right. so why are your weaving costs gone up that much because it's hard to get employees it's oh, hard to keep it's employees. pure labor it's, cost it's a labor cost it's getting labor yeah and the same thing transportation him getting chicken wings i mean it's the same for both of us. Prices have, most people don't realize how much food and shipping has gone up. It's right. It's, it's, it's very interwoven because some things you wouldn't even anticipate prices spiking or shortages happening. Yeah. You re like one example is glass bottles. There was a big shortage of glass bottles and we have a bar. So we were actually weren't even able to buy alcohol for our bar at one point during covid because yep. there was a, a a shortage on glass yeah. in general and that's something you would never even think of but until it runs out but then you're like wait all our alcohol is stored in glass bottles so yeah. what do you do at that point so a lot of surprises during that covid period and for me a lot of textile mills and weaving mills if they don't know who you are they won't take any new customers they mm -hmm. won't even answer their phone I was in a weaving mill about eight months ago, and a person was trying to get their yarn in from China into America. They couldn't even get it on a container ship. They had to fly their yarn back to America at $1.3 million. Jesus. This is before they've ever made anything. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, but, but, but what are they, in a situation, maybe a $3 million, I mean, what are they making with that? I mean, is that? They're making all kinds of clothing. Like we're talking about mass produced. Mass produced You know, clothing. like the fast fashion jeans shirts towels sheets yeah mass production that's there's such a large a, a small margin in textiles mm -hmm. and a lot of other things that you have to work on volume same way with farmers a sugarcane farmer can't have 10 acres he's got to have 100 acres yeah. or more and his land has to be paid for he's got to be a fourth generation farmer to make money he can't go out and buy land buy a million dollar tractor planners all that and make money it's just impossible you know yeah that seems like a very hard business to get into it's very interesting to actually meet a farmer because in 20 2022 you don't meet too many people who are farmers right i um, mean it, it's something you easily forget about like you said it's fabrics everywhere but you don't ever think twice where's all of this coming from and who's producing it right. so right it's very interesting right i mean i guess like to the extent you would be you're, you're just buying 
chicken wings, right? I mean, I, I, are you even buying the rest of the chicken ever? <laughs> well, we, we do serve chicken breasts okay. and things like that. But, yeah, yeah I, I often wonder that. It's only two <laughs> wings on every chicken, and we sell five pieces, you know, on every plate. So I only have 70 from? chickens, but we can work a deal out. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe just go with eggs, guys. You know, like we keep the chickens around. Um, so, Corey, I mean, did you you jumped into this, right? I mean, did you have prior business management experience before you did it, or was it just sort of like you I guys, actually you went kind to of felt like it came to you naturally? I went to school for education. Yeah. Um, another one of my partners went to school for finance. Another one for sure. marketing, and another one was a human resources. So we all kind of just took our specialty. Um, I'm the CEO, and so I train the management team. So I get to use my education background in that. While uh, my finance officer, he the one who went to school for finances, that's Jared Johnson, Trey yeah. John Vincent, our marketing guy. He's awesome has been amazing at spreading the brand and Avery Bell, our operations officer. So one of our key to our successes were all having our own lane and being able to focus on one key specific part of the business. Yeah. So I feel for a lot of business owners who are doing it all by themselves because I can only imagine having to worry about every aspect of it. I'm sure that's very difficult. Yeah, I could, I could imagine. I mean, Jerry, obviously you grew up on a farm, right? But I mean, I would imagine what you're doing today is fairly different, right? Very different. I mean, so what, like, when you guys, when you were growing up on the, the Hale family farm, I'm assuming, right? What, nope. <laughs> my, my dad was the planner and yep. ran the cotton gin on the farm. Yeah. I mean, did, 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 did you have to figure out this marketing piece now? I mean, to the extent that you I guys are doing I had to figure it all out. Yeah. And where did you go for that? Uh, just talking to people. Yeah. You know, start calling weavers, start calling spinners. Uh, spinners is a totally different industry than weaving. So it's is not connected uh directly yeah and they're totally different trades so uh but just calling and educating myself and talking to people and just finding my own way and yeah. making a lot of mistakes along the way right <laughs> right always <laughs> it i guess at the end of the day it's like no matter how far you want to go they're going to be growing pains right yeah. i mean and that's just the nature of the industry um and like Corey said bigger is not always better you get a whole group of new problems mm. and issues and staff situations and all so yeah <laughs> certainly i think we can all relate to that um and you know, I guess we can all relate to that story one way or another. Bigger is not always better. Uh, it's painful to grow, but I guess we all want to do it at some level, right? Yeah. Um, so, Corey and, and Jerry, thank you guys so much for, for joining me here on Out to Lunch Acadiana. Thank you. Thank you. My guests on Out to Lunch Acadiana today have been Corey McCoy of KOK Wings and Things and Brown Cotton Farmer Jerry Hale. We edited this conversation to fit into our time slot here on KRBS, and you can hear our unedited conversation and find out more about Corey's Chicken Wings and Jerry's Cotton by listening to the Out to Lunch Acadiana podcast. You can find and subscribe on your podcast app and on our website, itsacadiana.com. If you want to know what we all look like, you can find photos from this show on itsacadiana.com and on our Out to Lunch Acadiana social media. These photos were taken by Aster Morgan, and you can find more of Aster's photos at astermorgan.com. Out to Lunch Acadiana is a production of INO Broadcasting for itsacadiana.com and KRVS 88.7 FM. The producer of our show is Grant Morris. Our technical producer is Eric Merle. Associate producer is Molly Richard. Our researcher is Leah Erdialis. And today's show was engineered by Aaron Thomas. I'm Christian Mader, editor of The Current, Lafayette's nonprofit news outlet. For stories deeper than the headlines, head to thecurrentla.com. Join me next time for more business and conversation on Out to Lunch Acadiana. Bye-bye. 
Out to Lunch Acadiana is recorded live over lunch at Tula Tacos and Amigos. Tula Tacos and Amigos offers street-style tacos, margaritas, and an open-air courtyard on Jefferson Street in the heart of downtown Lafayette. Major support for Out to Lunch is provided by the law firm of Jones Walker, established in 1937 with over 375 attorneys in offices throughout the U.S., providing a comprehensive range of services to a local, national, and international client base. JonesWalker.com and by Oxbow Rum Distillery, local family-grown small-batch rum, embodying the essence of Louisiana sugarcane harvest. OxbowRumDistillery.com Mitchell Foreman wrote and performs all the music on Out to Lunch. You can hear Mitchell's music anywhere great jazz is sold or streamed and at MitchellForeman.com If you'd like to be part of Out to Lunch, there's one sponsor slot open for 2023. To learn how your business or organization can become an Out to Lunch program partner, Email info at inobroadcasting.com.